0: One, two, three, four.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, folks. I'm Amy Wright. My guest on the podcast today is Martin Sexton, a native of Syracuse, New York, and the 10th of 12 children. He's been praised for his down to earth songwriting and otherworldly voice by everyone from Rolling Stone to the New York Times and Billboard. A friend of his, someone you might have heard of named John Mayer, had this to say Martin Sexton is the best live performer I've ever seen. I may just quit my job and go follow Martin and make a fuss everywhere I go just to make sure that people don't go their lives without hearing this man sing to them. You can't top that. Today I chat with Martin about his latest EP, 2020 Vision how he decided to finally build that treehouse with his son, what it was like cutting his teeth in Boston, and a lot more. Hope you guys enjoy getting to know him like I did and that you'll share the podcast with your friends. Take a listen, and thanks again for choosing Diddy TV as your source for all things music. Yeah, we're excited to have you and um, talk to you a little bit about how you got started in music. And, of course, you have a new EP out, 2020 Vision, which I can imagine a little bit what that's about, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, so you were, you were born in Syracuse, New York, right? hmm And I read that you were the 10th of 12 kids.
2: Yeah, crazy, huh?
1: That is crazy.
2: Six, six boys, six girls.
1: Were there any twins in there?
2: No, no. And we're all healthy and, you know, all keeping in, in touch with one another. In fact, COVID kind of helped bring us... Uh, together even more believe it or not
1: so were any of your older siblings were did they play music and was that one of the reasons you got into music or
2: you know a lot of the folks in my family couldn't carry a tune if they had a a suitcase (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so uh, no is the answer Uh, one of my younger sisters was musical but uh, not the older sibs that I know of maybe they were closeted musicians but I never heard them
1: which is kind of amazing because you have an extraordinary voice and an extraordinary talent. And uh, maybe all the genes went to you. That's all I can say, right? (laughs) You got all the musical genes. And when did you start playing guitar?
2: I think I was, uh, my 13th or 14th birthday, or it might've been Christmas. I just, I wanted nothing more than a guitar. You know, I would roam through the the JCPenney catalog at night with a flashlight under the covers, just dreaming and, Asked for it and finally got it and yeah about, about that time early teens.
1: Did you teach yourself or did you take guitar lessons?
2: I took a few lessons uh, from an old fella back in like seventh grade and then after that it was learning off of like Beatles and Zeppelin records.
1: Did you already sing? Did you know that you could could sing at that point? Or I
2: knew because I would I would run up to the attic to listen to my older sibs music they had some good musical taste and i would listen to stevie wonder and that's sort of my first that's how i thought people were supposed to sing <laughs> like stevie wonder so i kind of like <laughs> have a very high bar as an early kid okay i gotta sing like people do so i'll sing like this guy and uh i thought most people sang that way <laughs> and of course they don't but um wow what a magical dude
1: he was a magical dude. He sort of reminded mm-hmm. me of a story we had Tommy Emanuel on. And he was saying, oh my god!" you know, he heard he heard uh, Chad Atkins playing and he thought the band and he thought he was playing the, every part himself. And so For he sure. said, I thought I had to learn how to play all the different parts by myself. And that's you know, funny. <laughs> so Of
2: course, then he did. And he does his magical <laughs> Tommy Emmanuel thing. And what a gift he is.
1: Right, exactly. It just sort of reminded me of that story with your voice because you you have this amazing voice. The first time I heard you sing was at the Telluride uh, Bluegrass Festival, I think it was, and you sang. Um, uh, was it America the Beautiful? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I have to tell you that mixtape on the open road, the mm-hmm. uh, Do It Daily. Oh yeah is a song that I listen to almost daily when we get oh, up wow. and we're eating our breakfast. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, c- that's awesome! thank you. Right, c- kind of inspires us to get, get the day going. Um,
2: like shaving your face, scrambling up the eggs, <laughs> mm, <laughs> on your place, never <laughs> beg to your baby and do it daily. That's oh, great, scrambling them eggs.
1: Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's that's so great. It is one of those songs that just makes us smile, and we're like, okay, we're going to do this one more time. And um, so you, so you were playing guitar, and you're in high school. Did you were you in a band mm-hmm. in high school? Or
2: yeah, I think I had my first band when I was 15. We played like in garages and like church uh, bazaars and stuff, and we played like old. I mean, like we had like played like an ACDC tune, and we played a Pat guitar song, and we played. Uh, all kinds of like classic rock. And I mean, we really kind of sucked, but, but we tried. I was, you know, I, I think I've been playing for like a year and I knew the chords. And, and uh, but we, we nailed it on a few occasions, I have to say, looking back.
1: So when did you think, hey, I, I think I want to do this? I want to I really be a musician. Or did it just sort of evolve for you?
2: I think way back um, in the bathtub singing stevie wonder tunes in the bathtub and you know it sounds so great in there and then also i would sing it out in the schoolyard in like uh sixth seventh grade and and kids would gather round and i got this attention and like that i never got before and you know kids were into it they would clap their hands to the beat and uh, they would applaud and of course then the nuns would come out and break it up because we were having too much fun i guess but it was <laughs> <moment>, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> God love them. God love them. Um, but uh, I think that was when it was born like, oh my gosh, I want to perform because this is great. I love this.
1: And at some point, you moved from Syracuse to Boston, right? Mm-hmm. And how how old were you when that took place? I was 22. It's was about
2: 1989, 90. And uh, you know, if I just thought, hey, you know, I know how to play guitar and I've got band experience, I'll so maybe I'll join like a hair band or something or some kind of funk band. And I took auditions and stuff and but never got the gig.
1: Were you already writing music?
2: Yeah, I was writing kind of crappy tunes at that time. <laughs> Songs that I wouldn't want to play live now, but um it was a start. You know, I didn't even own an acoustic guitar, I had a Stratocaster. And I got fired from my last job. Uh, well, it's now what we'd call a barista. Um, <laughs> ha- um, and I got fired from that job. And I I, I went in the, in the uh, I borrowed an acoustic guitar and went in the subway and uh, started playing. And oh my god, like people started dropping dollar bills bills in my case. And I thought, wow, I never have to have a day job again.
1: Well, so in Boston, there's this major college circuit. There are colleges everywhere mm-hmm. you turn around in Boston. So were you playing Mm -hmm. some of the college bars and was that part of your story or?
2: Yeah, some of that. Yeah, like in in Harvard Square, I think my first gig that wasn't in the subway um, or wasn't in like a little folk coffee house uh, was in a a rock club called T.T. the Bears. And in the in the club were two people. And besides the bartender, there were two people. One was um, Jeff Bartley, who's a, a. like a folk um, staple there in new England and his buddy, John Gorka. Um, and John of course was a folk sort of, he was kind of a folk legend at the time. And I, I I was familiar with his name and his work, but I wasn't familiar with the folk music of the day of the early nineties. So of course them being the only two guys, they, they listened to me. And then John Gorka, I remember he paid like cash for two of my cassettes being the gracious dude that he is. And, um, kept one for him and he gave one to his agent and his agent then contacted me. And, and that's probably why I'm known sort of as a folk singer today was that very night at TT the bears. Cause I hooked up with a folk agent and, uh, and that agent hooked me up with all the Canadian folk fests and people like Craig Ferguson out in Telluride, um, all of those festival people. Um, and that's probably why you saw me at that festival years later.
1: Have festivals been an important part in your musical career? Oh yeah, yeah.
2: All those fests were wonderful, you know, especially the Canadian ones. You know, you get a decent slot on those and play some of the workshops. It just builds a wonderful uh, following. And people still tell me about the first time they saw me at Telluride. I think it was the first time I played there was 96 and it was just pouring rain. (laughs) And I was getting drenched, and they were all there with me. And they just remember like, like it, like, like it, like it was a photograph. And, well, uh, I love hearing those stories.
1: Well, it's an extraordinary setting there. If people who haven't been to Telluride, the when you walk, when you come out in the open there, and there's a stage, and there's a mountain behind it, and then like mm. you said, kind of add in weather and some other things. That it's just, just the memory of that. I was there. I think it was um, early two thousands. Uh, and sort uh-huh. of when when I was there, but um, but I, I can't forget it either because just because it's just such an extraordinary setting and the music was beautiful. Um, mm. But but festivals, it seems like festivals. There's a circuit to that, and I think that people are there to really you know enjoy music and experience uh, songs or musicians that they haven't heard before. So it seems like that's a mm-hmm. good way to really um, connect with new fans.
2: Totally, yeah there's no better way to see like new and up and coming music than at some of these rootsy festivals throughout U S and Canada. Um, I can't think of a better way. And, and it's cool because they're not like, you know, an artist doesn't have to already have broke to be on them. So they're not household names. It's people who you're going to see and love and hear more from later as they grow and develop their careers.
1: So when did you put out your first album?
2: I saved up $801 bills from busking and uh, recorded on, on, in this guy's attic. He had a, a one-inch real 8-track uh, recording machine and some good gear. And we recorded my record called In the Journey, and it was the best 800 bucks I ever spent.
1: After you recorded it, did you feel like you needed more than 8-tracks, or was 8-tracks enough?
2: It was plenty, actually. You know, we did, I mean, the Beatles made like Sergeant Peppers on four tracks. So we, and I'm just a guy on a guitar. So, you know, I just kind of added some bass and some backing vocals. And I think I had a drummer on a couple tracks. And um, it was, a. It's, a I, it's kind of an innocent, sweet record. You know, I was literally playing on the streets and I would sell, I would sell it on the street, actually to folks passing by. Well,
1: and you've been pretty much an independent artist since day one. And Is that something that's important to you philosophically? I guess,
2: yeah. I did. uh, I had put out a few indies, like In the Journey and then Black Sheep. And then I signed with Atlantic, which was a wonderful dream come true and did a couple records with them. And then got off Atlantic sort of right before a big axe was going to come down. So I'm kind of glad I got out of it when I did. Um, I kind of learned that I didn't need the big guns uh, that a major label had at the time because um, as then I put out a double live record and kind of funded my own little imprint and with that uh, my little kitchen table record label um, it's been a wonderful journey um, with music business uh, like with things like song placement on film and TV and uh, radio play and, and and press folks like yourself it's it's been a wonderful ride um, I learned early that you don't need to have that big bank of a major label. You know, if you have enough money to sort of get things going and, and pay a publicist and um, and have a distributor who can get the record into the stores, then um, it can kind of work in your favor. And now it seems like everyone's doing it.
1: Well, it seems like there was, there was this major transition between the 90s and the 2000s. And you had Napster in there, and there were some you know, everything goes digital and everyone has to make a real shift in how they market themselves and how you sell or don't sell music. And I was wondering if being an independent musician made that transition easier than if you had been with a major label and had all that, uh, those extra sort of things going on. And then mm-hmm. the, the you know, the ax comes down and there's a whole new world out mm-hmm. there. If right. if being independent really kind of helped you through that.
2: I think it did actually. Um, I I think I may actually have been on a major label when Napster was in full swing like late 90s I remember um, somebody had recorded me singing Purple Rain in Minneapolis and uh, Napster kind of ran with it and it it actually helped me a lot it actually brought me to a lot of households that, that might not have heard of Martin Sexton before that. And uh, as a result of that, I get requests for that song like almost every night. It's, uh, <laughs> it's funny. I, I actually do sing it once. I try to only sing it when I'm in Minnesota just cause I like to tip the hat to to Prince. Uh, I usually do that. Like if I'm in, um, you know, a certain town, I try to tip the hat to other artists from that town. But um, so Napster was actually good for me. And I can't remember, if I was actually indie or on a major when it happened. But certainly I was indie years following and, and it's that was wonderful. It was, it was actually kind of like airplay for an artist like me, so it, it helped.
1: So do you think all the social media, the Facebooks and the Twitter, the Instagram and all these abilities, YouTube to uh, market yourself, do you think that's helpful? Or, or is it harder that you have all these options?
2: It seems like it's helpful because, um, you know, an artist like myself, I'm not relying completely on, you know, commercial airplay or, uh, you know, songs in commercials or something. Uh, so that opens avenues um, up to us to reach the fans. It used to be I had a mailing list, you know, of like 50,000 people and we would send out postcards with all the tours on them. And, uh, we, the last time we did that was 2007 or eight, I think. Um, and that's when we kind of dovetailed into this digital world we're in. So I think a short answer is yes. All the, that digital media definitely helps get my music out to folks. You know, like the live streams I did during the whole lockdown times really kind of branched me out to households that, um, might not have been familiar with my music or not as familiar. Um, so yes, is the answer. It's definitely helpful.
1: So as a songwriter, do you ever collaborate and co-write songs? Or are you pretty much writing just for yourself?
2: Both actually, I write just with and, and for myself. Um, and I co-write, um, uh, a lot of my, I think, best, uh, performing songs, um, were co-written. You know, uh, my good friend, Ned Claflin, who's in Los Angeles. We've co-written a lot together. Um, And I'd say probably, probably about a third of my tunes are co-writes and two thirds are just me. Um, The the most recent release is all just me because I was on lockdown. So I was kind of in my cabin alone with the family.
1: What is it about co-writing that that works? I mean, see, people describe that it it can be a really creative experience, but what is it that really works in that process?
2: I find that when I'm co-writing, I kind of have to be on my game because you want to do your best and, and I feel a little challenged, you know, like I'll have an idea and then they bring something to the table that you like or not so much like and... It's just a great collaboration. It's um it's uh it's a different beast for me. It's um I find when I co-write there's there's a little less dreaminess in my lyrics, um a little less nonsensicalness in my lyrics, um because when I'm doing stuff on my own I tend to take f- from what I call the John Lennon school of songwriting where you have these kind of dreamy lyrics like no one I think, what the hell is this fears? of No one I know I know think it's me, but you know I know and it's a dream. You know, like he's got all these lyrics that really don't mean anything, but because he's singing them, it means something. And uh, I like to do that myself, just kind of do wacky little phrases. Uh, and I tend to do less of that when I'm co-writing.
1: I can see that. Someone else is there, so you feel you have to focus or... Yeah. or... Hey, I need this needs to mean something. And um,
2: exactly.
1: yeah. So as a musician, you're on a platform. Obviously, you have all these fans, but, you know, you're kind of up there on a platform and there's the ability to really get the word out for various causes that might be important to you. Is there anything that you sort of that is important to you that way? And uh, how do you feel about that platform? as a musician?
2: Well, for me, I, I put a mission statement out years ago that I tried to abide by um, of unity. I tried to bring, I'm on a mission, um, like the Blues Brothers. I'm on a mission from G.A.D. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> to bring, to, my mission is to bring unity through music, you know, with using, harnessing the power, which is a massive power of music, um, to bring unity to try to uh, follow, you know, like the teachings of St. Francis, for instance, you know, like let, you know, let, let me be a channel of your peace where there is darkness. Let me bring light. You know, so I want to kind of use music to bring a sense of unity with people because I come from a family of all kind of different kinds of folks, you know, and um, we disagreed on a lot. We argued a lot, but you know, 12 people at a supper table with different views, it's going to get, you know, hot. And it did often, but at some point, you know, before the meal ended, we, you know, we remembered or reminded each other that we were a family. So we need to get along. We need to love one another. We can disagree, but still respect one another. And so I, I try to bring that without being preachy or like, you know, political, uh, I like to try to uh, just remind everyone that we all have our hopes and dreams and we all need the same things. And we're all children of this earth. And that's sort of my mission.
1: What always strikes me that there's such positive energy in your shows. And when you look out and you see everybody singing, is that part of that, that unity oh, that you're talking oh, totally. about?
2: Yeah. And, and I love it, too. Thank you for bringing that up, because... My audience um, is not sort of, you know, a one, uh, how am I saying this? Um, my audience is very diverse, you know, in age, in sort of political leanings, in sexual orientation, in color of their skin. So there's just, you have a group of people together who are singing in harmony, shoulder to shoulder, who probably out on the street wouldn't be doing that. And that's one thing, that's when I feel like I'm, I'm on the right path, heading in the right direction. Is when I see all these folks of different stripes, kind of leaving their baggage outside and and, and bringing their humanity inside, and uh, singing with other people. And that's like that's church for me. That's uh, my mom. Before she passed away, she said, "Hey, Mart, you are still going to church, right?" And I said, "Mom, every night, every night I'm working, I'm going to church." And that's sort of my church is when, I, when I'm when i with an audience and I see that it takes on a power greater than the sum of its parts. It's a beautiful feeling when that happens.
1: Well, I don't know what it feels like to be on your end, but on the end of being in the audience and singing with all those people, it does feel like church. And it feels mm-hmm. so positive and everyone's looking around at everybody else and uh, you can just mm-hmm. sort of feel the feel the joy for sure. Um, so, how has the last year been for you? We're going to talk about your new EP. Has mm-hmm. uh, it been hard to not tour and all those things? Or what are the pluses and minuses of having been at home, per se?
2: During the darkest days of 2020, f- one of the silver linings, or a few of them, there were several actually, was that. The FaceTime, constant FaceTime with my wife and my kids. And I don't mean FaceTime like when you're on a screen. I remember I mean physical FaceTime. And um, you know, for months on end, not leaving for tour, um, not really leaving much. That it there is actually a beauty to that because I never get that. I, I have to work, I have to go out, you know, and, and tour around the world to make a living. So <clears throat> to not have to do that was actually a a beautiful uh learning teaching moment if you if you would um you know we we cut each other's hair we cleaned out the closets we uh waxed the floors you know like me and my wife we actually waxed the floors with like old school wax like on our hands and knees (laughs) and i i definitely don't recommend it it was a big pain in the ass but uh you know, that tree house that I'd been fixing to build with my son for years finally got built in the summer 2020. Um, that kind of stuff, that was the kick in the ass from the universe uh, that sort of forced me to do those things that I'd been fixing to do for so many years. And finally we did it. And uh, and then, you know, I wrote a song in that treehouse, and then another song. And then a few want, you know, so good tunes came out of it and family time and I was actually blessed with some gigs through it too. You know, some socially distanced gigs, like whether they were drive in movie gigs or um, just outdoor parking lots with a stage or, um, and new inventions of gigs too, you know, they would pop up. Like they'd have a plywood stage behind a barn in New Hampshire and hang a LED light from a tree. You know what I mean? And that was the show. And like, but it was cool and like people dug it and and now we'll do it again, even though we don't have to, it's like these, it was the mother of uh, uh, the necessity was the mother of invention, and so, of course, it was that it was a dark period in our history and a painful, you know, with all the loss and and the suffering, of our family who who didn't make it. Um, my my aunt being one of them, um, but out of the darkness came some some light, and uh, that I'm very grateful for.
1: Yeah, I think across the board, people feel it's. There were pluses and minuses, but there were some real positives. One of the positives that came out of this for for me was being able to talk to people like you via Zoom, which really, really didn't do that before. And now Mm -hmm. we feel like we can really connect with people in a way that we couldn't or didn't, I should say, before. And um, but, you know, when you when you have all this FaceTime over the last year and you have all this creativity and the the positives of being with a family, does it make it any harder to go back out and tour?
2: Well, to be honest, uh, it was almost like being retired and I, I kind of liked it. <laughs> I kind of liked not working.
1: I'm I with you.
2: Not yeah. A, yeah. But, um, but I missed the human connection. Like now when I'm at shows and there's human beings in front of me, you know, just walking on stage is a win. It's like, ah, human beings, you know, I'm not in front of a screen doing this, um, so yeah, I definitely am very grateful to be back out, you know, whether it's an outdoor show or whatever, a socially distant or whatever they're doing now. <clears throat> you know, the we got all the fall and winter booked up, you know, to work this record and just hope it stays that way.
1: So let's talk about twenty twenty vision. It was produced by John how do you say El- Elagia? Alagia? Alasia. Alasia. Okay. Um because he's done some amazing things. And oh, yeah. um Tell me a little bit about him, because I know that that uh, he's produced some really cool albums.
2: Oh yeah, he. Um, I met him in the late nineties um, through our good friend Sue Devine, who was with ASCAP at the time, and we kind of stayed in touch over the years. He was a young producer, uh, and then um, and he was great. And then I, uh, when I left Atlantic, I did this double live record that I had mixed with him. We took all these shows. Multi-track shows, and I took it to his uh, studio in Maryland, and that was about 2000. And he was just—I remember at the time—he was just finishing up with this this young guy out of Connecticut called John Mayer on a record called Room for Squares. And uh, and after that broke, that really put Alasia on the map. And and with that, he really started working with a bunch of amazing artists and made some <clears throat> great records. And so it's been great, you know, having a friendship with him through the years. And um, we reconnected during COVID. And uh, I thought this would be a great opportunity to, to do a socially distanced record, I put down my tracks in Massachusetts, he did his thing in LA with the players. And uh, we kind of threw the tape back and forth through the uh, digital airwaves and made this completely socially distanced record. First time I've ever done that. I've always been a live on the floor, kind of recording artist. So it's the first time we did it like with click tracks and stuff.
1: Was that harder to do or easier?
2: I think a little harder, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of get the emotion and <clears throat> you got to pretend like you can hear what the drummer's doing. Cause you know, when I recorded my part of a baritone guitar and vocal, it's just me and my guitar and, a, you know, click keeping time. And, uh, so to, to emote, you know, when, when the drummer didn't do something cool or the backing singers didn't do their gospel thing, you just kind of, kind of imagine them doing that and it brings out the performance. And, and then if there was like a flat sounding line, um, you can always go back and re-sing it, you know, after, you know, like John Mayer puts on his guitar solo, um, you know, I can I can go back and you know sing over to that so I can emote according to what he just did and to get that live feel,
1: so what did John bring to the table that that sort of changed maybe your song in a way that i mean what what did he as a producer sort of bring to the table from that perspective?
2: He brought his just great um, wealth of of experience um, with songs and um production, just ideas of, you know, well, how about instead of a B3 here, we do a little prairie organ could make it more intimate or how about, uh, um, and also he said, you should add an E minor in that walk up on riding through the rain just before you hit the chorus. And like I had, yeah, oh yeah. It just kind of helps, you know, kind of little tweaks on a chord change or, uh, and it was him that suggested getting Mayer to do the solo on um, "Calling America," and wow, that's a great idea. We played it for John; he loved it. Laid down his Stratocaster, and uh, boom—you know, like a dream come true.
1: So you met John uh, through the label, then—that's how you met him, or was it which John? Mayer, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> I met I met John Mayer way back before I met Alasia. He was. Um, you know, as you can imagine, I'm touring through the late '90s in these places, and I was at, uh, I was in Atlanta in this uh, venue. I think it was Eddie's Attic in Decatur. And after the show, you know, oftentimes you meet folks, and they come up and shake your hand, and um, maybe give you a record. Uh, that happens a lot. And and this one night, about 1999, a young, tall, good-looking guy with brown hair came up and shook my hand and handed me his record and said, hey, man, I love your music and, I'd, you know, I'd love to open for you sometime and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, thanks a lot, brother. You know, and, uh, of course, next time I saw this young guy, I was opening for him and sold <laughs> to tour. And he had a Grammy and his girlfriend was Jennifer Love Hewitt.
1: Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like, wow, dude, everything's going well for you, I see. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, so that's one of those magical moments, you know, that happen. And, uh, and through the years, he's been very gracious, you know, with, you know, doing work with him, you know, supporting or sitting in or whatever.
1: Well, in 2020 Vision, tell me why you chose that particular title for your EP.
2: Well, because of the year was 2020 um, and all that stuff happened. Um, I wrote in my song, um, hold on um it struck me like lightning knocked me to my knees that old 2020 vision got me to see hold on uh so i guess i just extracted 2020 vision as a lyric from that song and i thought it would make a good album title because you know what they say about 2020 vision it's like hindsight is 2020 vision um and it's kind of cliche i know but um Because I think 2020, what happened in that year, you know, all the nice stuff I talked about with family and the stuff we take for granted and um, the new inventions, it, it brings a certain vision to, to us that we didn't have before. Um, And it's, it's clear, it's a moment of what the recovering alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity, that 2020 vision. So um, I thought, Hey, that sounds like a nice little, uh. Act title, I think.
1: Well, let's talk some about some of the songs on the track. So you mentioned Calling on America. It kind of struck me that, would you consider yourself patriotic?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. I love America. I always
1: have. Yeah. I'm right there with you.
2: <laughs> I mean, if, even if you go back to my first record, I had America the Beautiful on it. And my second album that I put out with Atlantic was called The American. Um, I've always had this sort of depoliticized view and, and appreciation and love for that that idea of America, the American dream and um, liberty and the Statue of you know Liberty. And um, I've always had an appreciation for the idea that someone could come here with nothing and make something of themselves. So um, I love that about him. And I love the topography of America. You know, I love the plains and the Rockies and the... Finger Lakes and the Adirondacks and the, you know, I've been around the world and I've seen all that stuff, but nothing compares to like driving across Utah on I-70, you know, it's just, man, I I just, I I love it, truly.
1: When you tour, do you get a chance to check things out? Or are you too busy when you're on tour?
2: Both, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, you know, it's funny, every time I meet folks, they always ask me, so how long are you in town for? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> one minute
2: <laughs> and I said, well yeah we got here at four o'clock for the load-in and we're gonna leave about midnight
1: yeah
2: uh, get to you know uh, Tulsa tomorrow you know what I mean and uh it's but once in sometimes um I do have a day off or I just enjoy that drive from Tulsa to you know uh Wichita or whatever um I always I've always made a point to not eat at the the typical restaurants, you know, the, the national chains. I always, uh, I, I used to have a book that I carried. Now I've just got my phone, but I always try to find those mom and pop places that not everyone's heard of, that the locals all love or where all the troopers eat. Um, I always go for those places. And as a result, I've got a wealth of, uh, if you ever need a tip on where to eat in, uh, in, in Salina, Utah, I can tell you where to go.
1: Well, actually, I can picture a new feature on Diddy TV, Martin's Tips on Restaurants. <laughs> so, there
2: you go. I can yeah. Wherever you are, whether it's the Northwest, the Southeast, uh, Canada, Minnesota, New York, whatever.
1: That's uh, barbecue awesome. Barbecue
2: especially. Love barbecues.
1: We got some good barbecue down in Memphis, but there's barbecue oh, everywhere. Okay. Everywhere you go, there's barbecue and so, different kinds. You know,
2: I, I hope I'm not sounding like a tourist, <laughs> mm-hmm. but my favorite rib is does happen to be the rendezvous.
1: Oh, we love the um, Rendezvous
2: <laughs> because I mean I've had I've had you know Interstate you know Jim Neely's down there in Memphis I've had others um, just but the quintessential Memphis rib I think is mm, that nice dry rub and a little sauce if you want it but man love me some Rendezvous I think it could be my favorite rib in America that and Dreamland out of uh, Alabama.
1: Yeah, I'm right there with you. I I'm a big dry rib girl fan. You know, I'm like mm-hmm. just, you know that I like it dry. You know, and they they have all mm-hmm. these signs on in Memphis that say dry versus wet. You know, which <laughs> which side are you on? But uh, <laughs> I'm on the dry yeah. side. So um, yeah, yeah. and Rendezvous is amazing. I remember going there as a kid before they redid it, and it would be smoky in there. I mean, oh, like yeah, literally, yeah. like tears are kind of coming down your face because yeah. there was so much smoke from the uh, cooking of the ribs that was underground and you're like all down there and people are smoking it was a combination of, of people smoking and the 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 barbecue smoke but it's an incredible place and it's been there forever and we love it here you know
2: forget the moose and the hairspray spray sugar we don't need none of that <laughs> a little dab will do you underneath the pork pie hat until hell freezes over, maybe you can wait that long. But I don't think Ronnie Millsap's ever going to record this song. Let's go to Memphis in the meantime, baby. Don't act there do. At least we can get us up a decent meal down at the rendezvous.
1: Oh, man, that's awesome. That was great. You remember
2: that old chestnut, that John Hyatt, Memphis in the meantime?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, That's that is a great tune. Love that. At least tune. we can
2: get ourselves a decent meal down at the rendezvous.
1: <laughs> well hopefully you get back down here soon. We're 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 hoping you tour down through here at some point, so we'd love to see mm-hmm. you again.
2: I'm uh-huh. sure I will. I did Nashville during the whole COVID thing.
1: so let's talk like there've a couple more songs on here. We've got Hold On, Riding Through the Rain, and Penny from the Land of Plenty. Tell me about some of those songs and where you wrote them and what they're about.
2: Riding through the rain would be, um, I was, uh, my stepdaughter is just so adventurous. She's and so fearless. She's just got out of college and, um, you know, she'll just travel the world with no fear. And, um, I was sort of thinking about that. Um, how, as a parent, you can't like, you can't keep them in the house. You know what I mean? You can't control them. Um, and you gotta sort of let them fly. And it, that tune is sort of about, you know, letting your kid, you know, fledge out of the nest and uh, and taking those chances and, you know, seeing those places and meeting those people. And um, it can be scary, you know, wake wait, wait, awake in bed at night, wondering where they are, what they're doing. And, it you know, it's beautiful at the same time. But I guess riding through the rain is, is all about that, that beauty and that fear. And I I knew a guy who, um, his name is Tim Mason. He was the the, the booker at one of the folk rooms way back in the nineties in New England. And his his daughter actually rode the rails when she was like 18, you know, she would ride the rails like a hobo around America. And like, he was at peace with it. Like he didn't know where she was or what she was doing. And like, and I think I have a line in there, you know riding the rails and it kind of speaks to that idea too.
1: And how about Hold On?
2: Hold On is all about that treehouse that I had been fixing to build. My Southern friends, you know, I'm fixing to, you know, I get that. I, I was wondering
1: uh, where you got that from, but, because you're not be <laughs> from the South.
2: No, ma'am, no ma'am, but I'm fixing to be
1: from the South.
2: And so I'd been fixing to build that treehouse with my boy for about four summers and finally took that 2020 kick in the butt to actually whip out the hammer and the scrap wood and uh, and we made it all with all, like, leftover stuff from other things. And, and then I wrote that tune. I sat down with my old Gibson in it. And, uh, and the tune kind of presented itself to me and finished it up on a bike ride on our dirt road. It's all about, you know, it's about that that love that, that you have with your family and that the, the simple things, you know, waxing the floors with my wife and hanging out. And I rhymed the word wife with wife. I didn't realize this till <laughs> after the song was like almost recorded. but time to, So I have time to be waxing floors with my wife and time to spend time with my sister and her wife. And I, it didn't dawn on me that, hey, it's the same word, but it, it worked.
1: <laughs> it totally worked. And uh, how about Penny from the Land of Plenty?
2: Penny from the Land of Plenty is sort of an old song of mine uh, that I had written about a gal I had met at a meeting years back. And... Uh, she would come in and out, you know, she'd get better. And then she'd kind of go off and, um, and then she never saw her again. And I had always wondered what became of her. And, uh, so I wrote this song about kind of a, a rich girl who's struggling with addiction. Um, I wasn't originally going to put it on the record, but then I thought, you know, in these times of, you know, 50, 60,000 Americans dying every year of, of opioid overdoses alone. I thought, man, this is our own. It's like a Vietnam every year. So I need to put out music that speaks to that. And uh, so it's basically a song about someone struggling with addiction. And it, it kind of ends on a hopeful note. You know, she's got to take that step. I want to help you and I'll do anything I can to help you and love you and accept you. But you have to do it for yourself. You can't do it for someone else. And uh, you're the only one of you you got, Penny. That's what that's
1: about. well, I love them all. Uh, we listened last night, and of course, we're big fans of yours, so it was uh as usual, we loved every song on the ep twenty twenty vision and um you know, we wish you the best of luck on your tour and hopefully hopefully everyone you know can enjoy live music again, which is what we're all about and getting mm-hmm. out and, and enjoying and seeing and fe- going to festivals and venues and and such. And uh, hey, come see us in Memphis if you get a chance.
2: Oh, I'd love to, I'd love to. Well, all the best to you guys. Hats off to you, thanks for the support. I appreciate you.
1: Absolutely, Martin. You take care and tell your family we say hello.
2: I sure will. See you guys out on the road of life.
1: We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Martin Sexton. To learn more about Sexton and what he's up to and to purchase his music, including his new 2020 Vision EP, visit martinsexton.com. And remember, you can visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free DiddyTV app from your app store today.
0: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football